We've been working on updating vehicle manuals so that instead of always prioritizing the free flow of traffic, that they prioritize safety over everything else. We are so excited to welcome Assemblymember Laura Friedman from Glendale, who chairs the Transportation Committee and is a hero to the bike community along with climate, housing, and kinder streets. Welcome, Assemblymember Friedman. Thank you so much for coming to Bike Talk. Thank you for your interest. It's great to talk to you. So you have had some enormous successes, and we'd love to ask you about them. First of all, $500 million for active transportation. I'd love to hear what it was like to build the support for that. Was it already there? How did you get people on board? And did you find a roadmap forward? Well, the biggest support we had was really the most important two places. Number one, Governor Newsom, who really understands the importance of infrastructure funding when it comes to active transportation. I think having been mayor of San Francisco was a really good place for him to come from, to be the person to be completely open to funding active transportation in the state. And then Phil Ting, who is our budget chair in the assembly, who also is from San Francisco, as well as Nancy Skinner on the Senate side from San Francisco, are all people who are from transit-rich areas where people really enjoy biking and walking. And they also understand the importance of making sure that we fund the things that make that safe through infrastructure spending. There's still a lot of resistance towards bike lanes in particular, but also even bus lanes in a lot of our communities and a lot of our cities. And so we need elected officials who are willing to fight for this and to shift funding over into doing this. And in my mind, there's no excuse whenever you're doing road work to not evaluate it for complete streets upgrades for pedestrians and cyclists, for anything that's a barrier to walking and cycling. And a lot of it is old engineering that's really geared towards moving cars quickly. And we see how destructive that is towards people's just ability to safely move around their communities. So I think every city should be looking at that every time they do work on any of their streets, if not just proactively in advance and figure out how they need to fund those changes, those engineering changes. Caltrans has oversight over a large section of roads, but certainly not all of them. And part of the problem is that I don't know that they are necessarily doing the formulas in a way that allows for enough of that complete streets work. Some of it is that they are restricted from using some of the funding because of the way that SB1 was written. And sometimes I just don't think that they are thinking with this lens enough. And that's something that I'm trying to work on and will continue to work on as long as I'm transportation chair is really pushing them to understand that their responsibility is not just for cars, it's for all the users of the roads. I couldn't agree more. We actually had the number two woman from Caltrans on the show and she's committed to bikes. It sounds like it's complex though. And having talked to a ton of Dutch researchers who we've interviewed a bunch of them on the show and talking to them about safety, I've become convinced that when you have cars interacting with pedestrians or people on bikes going really anything over, I'm going to say 25 miles an hour, really 20 miles an hour, you're going to have fatalities. And that actually gets us to the other huge win you had AB 43 is the importance of slowing speeds down. Well, we've gotten further with AB 43 than anyone else has gotten with this policy, but until it's signed by the governor, we just don't know what its fate is going to be. But AB 43 is an attempt to start implementing the recommendations of the Zero Fatalities Task Force that I was able to set up 
through the CTC two years ago, through another piece of legislation I did a couple of years ago, that looked at what we need to do to change our traffic laws to focus more on safety, pedestrian and cyclist safety particularly, but also for cars. And changing the way that we set speed limits was one of their primary recommendations. So that bill did get through both houses and is now in the governor's desk. I'm hoping that he'll sign it, but I just don't know. So we'll see. But that is very important because what the bill does is it gives municipalities a lot more flexibility in how they set speed limits. Right now, they are often forced to raise speed limits to accommodate people that are literally speeding. Mm -hmm. Uh, under this notion that people should basically be able to drive as fast as they feel the road is safe for them to do so. And that's regardless of whether it's really safe for them to drive that fast on a road. So I'm not going to tell you that speed limits are the only thing that determines how fast people are driving, but we know that it is one of the signals that is sent to motorists. So along with engineering and enforcement and education and lots of other ease, the speed limit setting is also very, very important. And it's been very frustrating for communities to see their speed limits every couple of years being raised in their community. And that's what our laws force municipalities to do. AB 43 would stop that, what we call speed creep from happening to our speed limits and also allow in some cases for speed limits to be lowered. No, it's amazing. And I didn't understand this when I got my driver's license. I was like hitting the pedal. You know, it's fun to drive fast. Cars are fun. But really interviewing people on Bike Talk made me realize how deadly it is. And then you can never unsee it once you see it. Mm -hmm. Yep, totally. So the Zero Fatalities Task Force, what were their other big recommendations? Well, they did recommend automated enforcement in many cases as being a better way to do enforcement, something that's more equitable than just pulling people over when they want to pull people over, like law enforcement does now, as a way to really lower the speed that people are traveling for a lot of reasons, and I'm happy to unpack that. There was a bill that I was a principal co-author on, which was AB 550 from David Chu in San Francisco. That bill, unfortunately, didn't make it through the committee process. I will be reintroducing that bill next year, most likely, so we will have another try at it. But that was something that they sort of signaled was the other side of this, is that you have to have a more equitable and more consistent way of enforcing posted speed limits. And engineering is certainly an important part as well. That's something that we'll continue to work on for funding. And then vehicle manuals, which in my role, we've been working on updating vehicle manuals so that instead of always prioritizing the free flow of traffic, that they prioritize safety over everything else. Oh, that's awesome. So that would be something that Caltrans, when they're thinking about designing, they would put safety first. Is that what you're saying? Right. They would put safety first. Exactly. What about education? Were there any ideas around that? I'm not sure that the task force made a lot of recommendations about education. I can tell you, being here in Glendale, when I was on the city council, we did a lot of work in this area because road safety has been a huge priority in the city. We don't have a very good traffic safety record. And so the city embarked itself on a pretty targeted safety message, not just to drivers, but also to pedestrians in terms of how to safely cross streets and about their responsibility as pedestrians as well. So it's something that is important. And I'm sure there are statistics out there from people who study this about how important that is. You know, I've heard over time, for instance, a lot of people talking about bringing driver's ed back to the schools. They don't have driver's ed in schools anymore. Like when I was a kid, I haven't oh, really? seen. I, yeah. I haven't looked at actual data about whether or not there's really definitive proof that that's made a difference, but there are people that are starting to think about whether we should look at that again. 
but education is a part of it for the driving community as well as for the walking and biking community. And, you know, I think that that's the kind of thing that's probably best done locally because different populations really have different needs. It might look different in a rural area than it would look in an urban area. In some of our ethnic communities or recent immigrant communities, you're probably going to want to target education differently into those communities and in different languages. In Glendale, we targeted education into some of our elderly Armenian community members, for instance, and also spent a lot of time translating different kind of hazard symbols and signage into different languages. So that's something that local municipalities should target their high injury networks and really make sure that they are able to do. And then I would say that some of our infrastructure and engineering is actually educational, like a flashing crosswalk or those signs that tell you your speed limit. They're really educational as well as engineering modalities that definitely have evidence that they do change driver behavior. So there's a lot of real-time driver feedback that can be programmed into your street environment that can help with this. And I would also argue that the car manufacturers should be incorporating more of this into the vehicles themselves. Yeah. What about speed governors? Has that been on anyone's radar? If you hit a 50 mile an hour speed zone, your car slows down. I think that that's going to be hard to get through Congress. We at the state level, we're preempted by federal law when it comes to a lot of the actual operation of the vehicles. Uh, We can't have different vehicular standards in California than in the rest of the country, for instance. We do it with smog, with emissions, but we don't do it with things like placement of mirrors or headlights or anything like that. Those are national standards. So even things like I've had people talk to me about how dangerously tall vehicles are. And we've looked into this a bit and there's a lot of preemption issues when it comes to standards that are set by the national safety regulators, as opposed to what we can do at the state. What about making it an issue around insurance where the cars that are so high, they kill people at a much higher rate. I love this new insurance where if you're a safe driver, you have lower insurance. Is there a way where if you actually are driving a car that's a lot safer, you could have lower insurance? Possibly. That's something that our insurance commissioner could certainly explore with the insurance companies. And I will say that some of the really jacked up vehicles I don't think are legal in California, things that are legal in some of the other states. I think that there are modifications that are done that in some states are legal and in California are not. So it's not the case that anything you do to your car would keep it street legal in California. But I believe that pretty much anything that's coming off an assembly line in Detroit is legal in California. And that's under federal laws. Uh, We can't just say we're going to no longer allow this class of vehicle, for instance. We're preempted by federal law is my understanding. But with modifications is a different story. Speaking of cities setting their own speed limits, having that control, as people joke, it's like the one local control cities don't have. And speed cameras, what can activists do to help this cause? Well, the speed camera discussion really needs to be something that we do have activists weigh in on. I think that part of the problem last time was that we didn't have enough support and not just support from the bicycling community. We're going to need support from affected communities. So most of our deaths and accidents occur in our low-income communities. Our most dangerous streets tend to be ones for a variety of reasons that are in low-income communities and communities of color. There's also, of course, a lot of issues about doing enforcement in those communities, you know, for sort of obvious reasons of not wanting to target for special enforcement those same communities. So when we designed this bill, we built a lot of what we consider to be equity measures into the bill. And it was a whole long list of things designed to be a benefit for those communities, particularly. For instance, I'll just give you an example. Any of the revenue generated from that automated enforcement would have to be spent right back in that same community on the exact same streets 
to make them safer. So you couldn't put an automated feed camera in a community and then take the money and move it somewhere else in the city or into a different community. It would have to be spent there in the community. Also, the tickets would be much, much lower than any ticket that you would ever get from a live police officer. So a speeding ticket in California can be three, $400. These tickets would be $50. And for the first ticket, you would get a warning. You'd have to have signals before you came into these areas saying that there was automated enforcement because the goal is not to issue more tickets. The goal is to bring the speeds down to make the streets safer. So there was a whole lot of measures designed to be protective for communities. However, we didn't really get to the point where we were hearing from those communities about wanting the enforcement. We just didn't have time to go out into the communities and explain all of this to them. That's something that we're going to need to do next year because these are the same communities where children are being run over at disproportionately high rates, where senior citizens are getting killed because of speeding drivers. So the goal here is to go into the most dangerous areas for pedestrians and cyclists and slow the traffic down. And I would hope that when we explain what the goals are and how the bill would help do that, that we could get buy-in and support from those communities. It's going to take that to get these bills through the legislature. We also designed the program to avoid the mistakes that the red light camera program had had in terms of being often seen as being punitive, getting people that weren't flying through red lights, but actually catching people that were doing rolling stops, right turns on reds, who didn't feel that they deserved to get the citation. This was designed, for instance, you would only get a ticket if you're going 15 miles an hour or more above the speed limit. There was a whole bunch of stuff in there to avoid those earlier pitfalls with other automated legislation. So we were trying to be very careful and deliberate. And it was a pilot only in cities that wanted it and only in a limited number of locations. But we do need people to go out into these communities and help us get those communities to support this legislation. Communities who know that they have a problem with their traffic safety, who have seen just the carnage and the road violence on their streets to say, we understand that this is an important tool. We know that this will help bring down the accident rate and we want to give it a try in a pilot program. That's what we're going to need. Somebody suggested this, you know, in Bishop, California, I don't know if you've ever driven up to Mammoth, they ticket you at like one mile an hour over. I love what you're saying about the ticket being low. You don't want the money necessarily. You're signaling to people how dangerous it is. It's not supposed to be punitive. When you get those $300 tickets, it's very painful, but it's almost like you don't want it to be 50 miles an hour and you don't want it to be $50. You want it to be one mile an hour and you want it to be $10. That's one idea that somebody was saying. I like that because it's about educating people because once people understand it, they wouldn't want to drive that fast because they realize how much danger they're putting everyone in. Yeah, for sure. So tell us about 1401 and parking minimums. And do you have hope for that for this next session? I always have hope, um, but it's going to be tough. We did get it through the assembly. It did fail in Senate appropriations, unfortunately. I think that we need to do probably a better job at educating people about what the bill is trying to accomplish, which is actually a whole lot because the bill is important, I believe, in the transportation space. It's important in terms of the reducing congestion space. It's important in the space of encouraging walkable, bikeable communities near our transit centers. And it's also important when it comes to bringing down the cost of building housing and trying to create more housing near our transit centers. So it's a big bill with big ideas, but I feel like not everybody really gets it. And so we're still hearing arguments about, oh no, developers should have to basically pay for this privilege of having less parking by adding affordable units. And I understand that it's important for us to add affordable units, but I think unlike things like adding extra height or extra density to a building, requiring developers to add excess parking actually harms the environment. It 
increases greenhouse gases. It stops people from using transit. There's a whole list of harms that are also important to reduce. So by only thinking that this is helping the developer without realizing how this also helps our climate goals and our transportation goals and our walkable, bikeable community goals, we're doing the concept a disservice and we're doing the public a disservice. So I'm reintroducing the bill next year as it was, probably without making any changes at first. And I think it's going to be, again, uh, a tough fight to try to get it through. But it was my number one priority bill last year, and I'm committed to keep working on it. When people are fighting it, is there another agenda? Is it a misbelief? Is it just hatred of developers? I think that there is some of that. I think that also there are people who just don't want more housing built necessarily. There are people who honestly want more parking and more cars. I hear it a lot from the local government people, but we want to have all this parking. It's much better if people can just park it. We're worried that they're going to park on the street or park other places. And, you know, I say to them, well, there's cures for that. You know, there's things like buses and even parking management. A lot of these areas which are near high quality transit are in downtowns where you probably have a lot of underutilized parking in commercial buildings, for instance, and office buildings. But you don't have a parking management plan, so you just don't know. And by managing the assets that you already have, you can deal with a lot of that impact. And also in a few years, we're going to be having autonomous vehicles. I still believe that. And (laughs) the parking is not going to be as important for everybody who's moving around. So why are we forcing everybody to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in some cases building some giant subterranean parking lots when that money could be going back into lowering rents, for instance, or just building apartments for the missing middle that cost less money to build? So there's a lot of reasons to do this. And I think that every single one of the fears that people have about the bill can be addressed through things other than forcing developers to build more parking. Well, tell us about parking management. How does that work? Parking management would be that a city would go in and look at the existing parking in one of these high quality transit areas, half a mile radius around a high quality transit stop. That's all the bill deals with. They would be able to look within that zone and see how much parking they have and when it's being utilized. In a lot of cases, for instance, an office building has almost nobody in the parking lot at night, the exact same time when people are coming home from jobs and wanting to use more parking. So can you work out an arrangement with the private owner of that parking structure to allow it to be used for residential parking in the evening or spillover parking or whatever kind of parking you need? How do you manage those parking spaces, manage spaces that might be in city lots, municipal lots, or a municipality could add their own municipal lot, but take the burden off of having parking. Every single lot has to provide a certain amount of parking. Right, right, right. Or run more buses would be even a better option. (laughs) Run more buses where people are working, invest in complete streets, and try to get people from having to drive everywhere, especially those short, you know, one to two mile trips that are the bread and butter and the bulk of the trips that are being taken in these areas. And we all as a state have made huge investments in high quality transit, whether it's a metro line stop or a big bus hub. And that's the area we're saying we shouldn't have these parking requirements. Give the transit a chance to work. It's never going to work if you keep forcing everybody to build huge amounts of parking. There's just no reason at that point for people to take that transit as much of a reason. This way, you can actually invite people to live in an area where they want to be a transit rider, as opposed to someone who's getting everywhere all the time by car. So we made the investment in terms of that transit, and now let's give it a better chance to work and be utilized. Cities do their own parking maximums? Right now, cities or counties in an unincorporated area control the parking minimums. Parking maximums as well they could do, and there's one or two cities that have instituted parking maximums. But most cities right now still have very high parking minimums, pretty much for all development. Uh-huh. 
And so this would force cities to get rid of parking minimums around transit. Around high quality transit, not all transit. This is what's considered high quality transit under the law. You're the leading voice on these issues of bikes, transit, and density. And really, I feel like it's so important. But what about for next year? What are your priorities? Well, I'm going to keep working on safer streets. I'm going to be working on the automated enforcement piece, probably with some of my colleagues. I want to continue working on the 15-minute city idea where you're within 15 minutes of either a walk, bike, or transit ride of everything that you need in your life. So we're going to keep working on that, on active transportation. I've been very interested in making sure that our policies reflect the nexus between transportation, housing, and climate, because they are flip sides of the same issue, but they're often treated as though they're completely separate issues that exist in their own silos. And we're not going to have good comprehensive policies about any of those areas if we don't connect them together. So I'm going to continue to try to connect them and integrate them much more clearly and make sure that they all work in harmony with each other. When you silo them, sometimes they don't work together very well. So I'll continue to work on those because to me, climate and housing and livability and clean air, it all goes hand in hand with the kind of future that we want. And so it's exciting to be able to work on those issues. Tell us about the 15-minute city. What's the bill that you have in your imagining? Well, I don't know yet. We had done that with my active transportation bill that does work on what's called the sustainable community strategies which is a concept that was put into law many years ago, but kind of lacked teeth. That bill that we did pass this year was about giving financial incentives to cities who put that into action through their general plans and through these sorts of bike highways and other strategies. We're going to continue to work on that, but I couldn't tell you right now what the bill is going to be. We haven't written it yet. So we're certainly open to people's ideas. So do feel free if you're hearing this and you have ideas to reach out to my office. And we'd love to, to hear people's thoughts. We work a lot with advocates and some of our best bills come from working with advocates like the bicycle community, like Cal Bikes, like California Yimby and Abundant Housing. We've worked on 1401 with, and we'll continue to work with these groups as we move forward on other legislation. That it's really wonderful to hear you say that because I think we're such a creative state and such a creative city. I think people have all these ideas and it's great to know that they should speak up. Absolutely. They certainly should. Well, thank you so much for coming on Bike Talk. It was really great to hear all this and congratulations. And we're so inspired by the work you're doing. Well, thank you. We don't do any of this in a vacuum. It's large coalitions of activists and residents and municipalities and my colleagues and all of the amazing nonprofits like Safe Streets for All and Transform and the different bicycle coalitions, San Francisco Bicycle Coalition, National Resources Defense Council, and so many others have worked with us on all of this. And I'll give a call out also to my vice chair, Vince Fong, a Republican from Bakersfield, who's also worked quite a bit on safe streets. So there's a whole lot of people working on this, but this is a public health crisis. We've got 40,000 people this year killed through traffic violence. And those numbers are going up consistently every year. And we don't have to live that way. We don't have to take this as collateral damage. We need to make our roads a lot safer. So I want to thank you for your interest, for your work that you all do and, and your listeners. And we are here to be a partner with you. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is BikeTalkPFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. 
You can become friends and join our group. 